Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My 150th guest today is photographer and educator Lois Connor. Uh, Lois and I are going to talk about her amazing life in photography, her many influences, including working for the United Nations, her love of art history, and of course, we will talk about Lois's work, including her most recent show, Flat Earth. Uh, it was such a pleasure to have Lois on for my 150th guest episode and also <laughs> as my former thesis instructor at the School of Visual Arts. But before we get to that, you know that this episode was sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. You can sign up for the subscription or just visit their shop at charcoalbookclub.com. And I just want to give a little extra shout out to the Charcoal Book Club and Jesse Lenz because they have been fantastic partners for the podcast for the past few years. And sometimes those wonderful books have turned into episodes for the show. And that is something I hope to expand upon uh, in the future. And I'll explain a little bit more of that in a moment. So I was really thrilled to have Lois on for this 150th guest episode because this will be the last regular episode for a while. Uh, the show will go on, but I'm going to take a little break and think about a new format for the show. I already have some ideas to link the show more to the gallery that I run, the JKC Gallery down in Trenton. Maybe pairing book launches with shows at the gallery and just doing more live events overall. Uh, but I'll have more on that later, um, and the show will come back. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk a little later on. Nice to uh, connect with you. Hi, Michael. It's great to connect with you, too. We occasionally uh, talk every once in a while, but um, it's, I think mostly I see you uh, posting on Instagram now. Right, as I see you and posting your wonderful <laughs> exactly. interviews. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, so um, I thought we'd just revisit a little bit how, uh, how we know each other. You were my fourth-year thesis instructor at the School of Visual Arts. What year was that? 1990. That was a few years back. <laughs> <laughs> that was a while ago, yes. <laughs> uh, and you've taught, you've taught in a lot of different places. You've, you've taught, I know you, um, I was it most recently is Fordham where you've taught? Um, yes, but now I'm teaching at um, Penumbra Foundation. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, uh, you just closed a show at Penumbra. Really wonderful show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for going to see it. Flat Earth. Yes. Yes. And it's traveled now to Boston, to the Robert Klein Gallery. Okay. So how long is it up in Boston now? Till May 21st. And is it using all the same... Uh, is it the exact same show? Because I know Penumbra built these beautiful cases for yes, your work. Yes. The vitrines are a, an essential part of the show. So that's what was hard to pack up. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> That was real furniture. I know, yeah. I know. And um, <laughs> all but one went up there, and that one sold, so we left it there. Because we weren't really sure that all 23 vitrines would fit. The mm. number of frame pictures, I think, is 17. And, of course, they, they fit beautifully. You, you know, we're going to definitely talk about how you got into all this. But as long as we're talking about the show, yeah. the show is a, a, a combination of... Tell me if I'm wrong. More recent gelatin silver and then platinum prints, uh, vin more vintage platinum prints as well? Okay. The exhibition is, it's all contact prints. So the ones in the vitrines are silver prints and the ones on the wall are vintage platinum prints that the curator, uh, Leandro Valero, edited, you know, from my work. I mean, he really went through a lot of stuff. And, you know, because it's, it's a certain way of looking at the landscape. So the multi-panels are, the, the silver prints are both vintage and contemporary. You know, because right, some of them he didn't want me to reprint because they're printed on, you know, Agfa and, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just beautiful papers that they don't make anymore. Yes. the Were, were you a Portriga user, a warm tone paper user? Yeah, I usually toned it. I didn't like it quite so warm, but I did like that paper. 
Yeah. Boy, boy, we could go down a real rabbit hole here. Yeah, no, there's all sorts of papers that they don't make anymore. And, you know, I I mean, I'm so happy they still make this Ilford paper, the multi-grade paper. So all of your images are contact printed because you're using a large negative, the 7 by 17 negative from the the banquet camera. And I want to talk about that. But but before we we move off the show, because we're we're here, the vitrines that the, the prints are laid in are sort of low and flat so that you're looking down upon your panoramics. And like you said, they were curated in a way where it wasn't specific to any particular project or or one thing you were doing at a time. It was, the, the title of the show is Flat Earth because it's about experiencing this kind of landscape in the way that you might look down, almost like on as an aerial kind of photograph experience, right? You're looking down upon the work. And it's flat earth because everything is laid out flat. And also because of the kind of work you do, there are panels. There are not triptychs, but more than triptychs, right? They're, they're laid out in a way, almost in the way that you might experience a triptych. Yeah, well, they're, um, the longest ones are um, six panel. Right. And But we wanted to do more. I mean, I have ones that are eight and nine panels, both vertical mm. and horizontal. But you have to be reasonable. Um, I, I don't really <laughs> think of them as aerial views. I think that the title is a much more nuanced meaning. Mm. But um, let me just explain one thing: is that yeah. you know when you have a vitrine that's a finite height, right? It's a specific mm-hmm. height. The viewer can only move closer; they can't move further away. So it invites right. the viewer to look closer. And like looking at a, a hand scroll, a Chinese hand scroll, you move along the narrative in a way that you wouldn't if the, they were on the wall. If they were on the wall, you can step, step far back and see everything, mm. right? And so you don't really yeah. experience it maybe like I made it, which is one panel at a time. It's about the continuum. It's about the narrative. But it's also, it's about moving along the landscape. That's really interesting. So it's it's a way of experiencing a hand scroll that you might be even holding. Yes. And that's as far away from it as you could possibly get is the length of your arm. Exactly. Uh, but it, you, you've done it in a way where you don't have to have people handling your work. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the hand scrolls, the Chinese hand scrolls, when they're viewed, they're, you know, you, you scroll and unscroll on a table almost about that height. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he didn't know that. That was an intuitive on his part. And I had given a lecture at Penumbra maybe um, two years before the show opened. And mm-hmm. I'm always frustrated by showing the long panels on the screen because they end up being just like these little teeny skinny things and you can't see anything. Yeah. I mean, already just a 717, it's only taking up one third of the frame. So... I don't know. For that particular evening, I, I just thought, well, I'm just going to take a pile of them. And then at the end of my talk, I'm just going to throw them on the floor. And that's what I did to everybody's amazement and <laughs> surprise. <laughs> and people got down on the floor and looked at them. And so, yeah, that that's a, an inspiration for this, the way you're showing the work yeah, now. That's, yeah, that, that was his idea from me doing that. I mean, he probably tells it a little bit better than I do, but <laughs> but it was yeah. it was it was so moving to have people just yeah get down and look at them, you know, take that journey with me. You know, this idea of the Chinese scroll that that's been an influence, of course, in your work for a very long time. I think I don't know wh- I don't know which came first, the seven seventeen banquet camera or the idea of the scroll, or was it? Being in China and doing work in China, where did that all start? Well, you know, I was working um, with the 8x10 when I was at Yale as a graduate student, and it's a more European shape. I loved it. I still love it. I still Mm -hmm. use the 810. But I guess the biggest criticism for me was that everybody thought my pictures should be bigger. And at that point, <laughs> Richard didn't, Richard Benson didn't think I should be mm-hmm. making enlargements. And one crit, I made enlargements. And he was, was like, you know, I, I still have a few. And he said, you know, contact prints, they're much more interesting. Mm. And so I thought about that. But then also, um, I'd taken as my elective classes while I was studying photography, we had to take three elective classes. They could be in physics or drawing or, you know, religion, whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. I took all of mine in art history because I'm interested in the 
history of the world through art. I always have been. And I did a class at the British Art Center um, on Constable. And, I mean, it was amazing because they have an incredible archive of his work, including um, watercolors. Mm. And then I did another one. And then the, the one I did towards the end, the semester before my last semester was, I just thought I'd take a class in something I didn't know anything about. And I did um, Chinese landscape painting from the Ming Dynasty. Hmm. And it was a graduate level class. And I was kind of immediately intimidated. Everybody spoke Chinese and they knew a lot about Chinese painting. And at the end of the first class, I asked the professor if I could drop the class because, I, you know, I didn't oh, feel no. I didn't feel <laughs> skilled enough to sort of, you know, dive right in. And he said, no, you can't drop it. You bring another point of view. This is Richard Barnhart. And, wow. and we need that. And I was just like flabbergasted. And, and, and also, at the same time, very encouraged to speak up more. So one day we were looking at Ming paintings from along the Lee River, the Guilin landscape. And, and I put up my hand and I asked why they painted these mountains in such a fantastical way. Was it some kind of tradition? And he said, these are, these are not mountains. It's some limestone formations that used to be under the sea that were weathered over the millennium into these mm. fantastical shapes. And he told me where it was. And so I guess that was the beginning of my interest in being in China. I wanted to see these formations. Yeah. Talk about a, um, a professor having a profound influence on the direction you take, right? I mean, right. if you had been allowed to drop the class, where would you have gone? I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I already had... You know, China in my life, like, because I was working at the UN, so I work with people That's from right. all over the world. And at that point, I started working for the Law of the Sea Conference. I started working at the UN three days after I arrived in New York in 1971. But I started wow. working for the Law of the Sea Conference in 1977. And there, I worked for the drafting committee. And so we were working in the six official languages. So because I was handling Chinese documents. Hmm. But anyway, my study of Chinese happened. I started to study Chinese because I thought, well, we get classes for free. And I was studying French the whole time I was at the UN. I, I never think it. <laughs> <laughs> I like French. Well, it's also it was also like the still uh, a language for diplomacy, right? It was English and French, yeah, it's, wasn't it's, it? Yeah, it's then? still English French. So oh, okay. it's an essential language if you're going to work there. To, no, yes, no. to French speakers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, so in order to handle the documents, I you know I needed to be able to read all the languages and you know just to sort of be more efficient at my job, I thought, well, do I take Arabic, Russian, or Chinese? And I decided on Chinese. You know, I only took a few classes, and th that was helpful when I first went to China, but I, you know, then I also ended up studying in China in 1988. That's right. Yeah. So you were, you were at the UN for quite a while, and at some point, you go to Pratt for your photography degree? Yeah. You want me to do the whole story? <laughs> yeah, we're doing the whole story. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I came to New York in the fall of 1971. From where? From Pennsylvania, <laughs> where, you know, I became, well, we lived in different places across the country, but I lived in Pennsylvania the longest. Were you an army child? No, no, no. My father worked for DuPont. So we lived in Tennessee oh, for a okay. while in Delaware. And, uh, you know, but then when we moved back up north from Tennessee, my father wanted to live in Pennsylvania so we could be in the countryside and have a little bit of land. Hmm. And, and my brother at that point was already keen on being a farmer. I mean, from a very oh, wow. young age. So, and he still works the land and you know, bases himself out of uh, the family farm. Wow. Yeah. What what kind of farm is it? Well, we used, to, well, we, <laughs> um, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's not a huge amount of land. We used to have a lot of sheep, mm -hmm. but now my brother has all of his equipment and a, and a few sheep and he does, he does some, um, you know, multiple 
kinds of um, work, you know, from excavation and tilling land and um, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right to planting and right. um, actually he's even doing you know creating gardens. So, but the the farm life wasn't really for you. No, no, no. I you know I find solace in the landscape. I I loved be you know I loved being there. But I mm-hmm. I came to New York in 1971 after two years at University of Delaware. And I feel like really happy if I had to do it all over again, I would still do exactly that because I wasn't really ready to come to New York at 18. But I mm-hmm. had been coming to New York with my mentor. I, I apprenticed to a painter at 13 when we moved to oh, wow. Pennsylvania from Tennessee. We moved next door to an artist and I asked my parents if I could be his apprentice. I mean, I don't even know that I understood what an apprentice was. <laughs> But <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, I became very good friends with the artist James James Gaynor, and um, you know he was a big influence in my life. But we used to come up to New York to see a show at the Met. They didn't have Chelsea back then, but we went to the galleries. I mean, I remember seeing Warhol in the '60s with him. Wow. Yeah. So after two years at University of Delaware, I really thought that my trajectory was to be a fashion designer. So I hmm. came to New York and I I went to FIT for two years, but I couldn't afford to go to school during the day. You know, I had to have a job during the mm-hmm. day. And I ended up after three days at the UN just by some happy confluence of luck and energy and whatever. You know, somebody I met on the subway that I was asking directions to said, oh, you know, do you want to have a cup of tea? And, and you know, I'll walk you to your place and where you, you have your interview and, and um, we could have tea afterwards. And, you know, I'm a young girl. I'm 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So I said, yes. And he said, well, you know, it's the General Assembly. It starts like in two weeks. You should go to the UN <laughs> and see if there's, you know, an opening because they always hire a a lot of people during that period of time. Oh, it's like it's like their holiday season. Yes. <laughs> so I did. I went over and I took the test and, and they hired me for a temporary job for the um, General Assembly. Wow. Yeah. And so my first job was basically being Google. I, I um, it was in protocol <laughs> and um, people would call up. This is 1971. You weren't even born yet. I was just I was four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So we had we had a, a wall with all these, you know, the member states of the UN and, you know, it had all the information, head of state, GNP, you know, cities, any kind of information that people might call up about. And mm. so people call up and say, what's the, who's the president of Swaziland? Where is Sri Lanka? What's the GNP of India? What's the population of France? You know. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I would go over and get the card. At, at this period of time, you know, countries were changing names and borders were changing. Yes. Yeah. And there was a lot of decolonizing uh, going on. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It was, I mean, it changed my life just being, I mean, there's so many things that really affected my life in a profound way, but certainly working at the UN for, I was there for 13 years. Mm-hmm. Was it your work at the UN then when you, started, you know, getting all this exposure to other cultures and countries. Um, You already had an interest in painting. Is that when you started moving away from this idea that you were going to get into fashion and then uh, Mm. perhaps get into photography? I I stuck with fashion design, but I mean, because I was going to school at night and I I went Mm -hmm. two years. I mean, I never graduated from FIT because I, you know, during the middle of everything, I, um, I took classes in tap dancing. I'm in New York. I'm 20. Yeah. You know, my, the world is, you know, so full of possibilities. So I heard that Philly Paulsman was teaching a class in his studio through the new school. And this is oh, way wow. before the Internet. You know, I was reading a magazine sure. and I saw that. And so I signed up. And, I mean, that class would change my life. At the end of the class, he's, you know, he said, Lois, why are you studying fashion design? And hmm. I was, you know, wanted to crawl under a table. You know, <laughs> he says, you're a photographer. And wow. I mean, I, you know, just remembering it makes me want to cry. You know, mm-hmm. it's just such a, a moment. 
and we became we we had already become friends and and we became better friends and he encouraged me to go study photography and that's when i applied to pratt and i went to pratt for two years during the day and the un gave me a job um working it at night six to two thirty oh wow yeah. <laughs> so that that's a rough schedule you know, it might have been hard. Everybody said, oh, how do you do it? And it just, I was doing everything I love to do. Mm-hmm. At night, I was working with a really interesting group of people. We were working on documents. And most importantly, the journal that came out every morning that described the meetings of the day before and, you know, scheduled the meetings that were coming up. So you kind of are really connected to what was going on in some parts of the world. My friends were that I work with were from all over the world. I mean, that was the case in every office that I worked at at the UN. And, you know, just their stories and, and their lives were, were so interesting and, and, and sometimes similar, but sometimes quite different from mine. And, you know, I got interested in traveling to see some of those places. And one of the places I worked in was um, the language training service. And in order to teach a language at the UN, you have to have taught it as a foreign language. So for oh, the okay. for the Americans, they mostly had come from the Peace Corps, and from the for the French, the Foreign Legion. And so I get, I became really um, close to some of the people in the Peace Corps that were former Peace Corps volunteers. And then when my brother graduated from Penn State, where he studied farming, and you know, I said, well, why don't you join, you know, why don't you join the Peace Corps? I don't know. It, at this point, he was listening to me a lot. And so he put in his application. And younger brother? Younger brother, three years younger. But you wouldn't know it. Now he treats me like I'm 10 years younger, which is a good thing. <laughs> so the, they immediately got in contact with him because here's somebody who has a skill other than you know, being able to speak a language, their own language, right? Mm -hmm. He has the skill farming, which is essential for anywhere in the world. So he asked to be sent to South America, and they sent him to West Africa. And his French wasn't very good. He wasn't so keen on languages. But within six weeks, he was speaking French, and he learned three African dialects. He went to, he was sent to the Ivory Coast. So being that I was the sister that got him in this situation, it was two years, you know, without coming home. Mm -hmm. And my first trip out of the country was to the Ivory Coast. I felt like I had to go see him, and it was an amazing time. We traveled all around the Ivory Coast, and we Mm -hmm. also went to Ghana and Liberia. It was a very special experience. And then on the way back, I flew to Rome. I mean... My father had been there during the war, and of course, from art history, there were so many things I wanted to see, starting with the Roman Forum. So I thought, well, I'm all the way over there. I'm going to go to Rome. And I was in Rome for a week, and then then I flew to London because I wanted to see Stonehenge. So, (laughs) you know, so it was the beginning of, of, of my journey to kind of. And you were also already a fan of Constable, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that was really special. I hadn't actually, at that point, that was 77. I went to Yale 79 to 81. Mm. But, I, you know, I knew of Constable. I mean, like all my elective classes, even um, at Pratt, were photography and art history. One of my teachers was Helen Levitt. Oh, geez. <laughs> I know. And then another of my teachers for the view camera was Alan Newman who I still know, is a remarkable photographer mm. and teacher. He's at the National Museum in Washington. Oh, okay. So, you know, my my life, you know, the influences are coming from everywhere. I love being in New York. The UN was really, I can't imagine my life without having worked there. You know, it's also really wonderful to hear Someone speaks so highly of New York in the 70s, you know, because I, I, so I, my experience of New York is 80s and 90s, of course, through now. And, you know, when I hear people talk about how bad it was in the 80s and everything, I, 
I know there was, you know, there there were rough times and crime and and other things, but I, you know, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I loved my experience of New York in the eighties. I walked every everywhere when I went to FIT. I think I had to take a subway so I could get there in time or the crosstown bus. <laughs> and but I always walked home. But I had a token in my pocket and a few dollars if mm-hmm. I if I felt nervous or whatever. But I, right. I, you know, everybody would call me up from home and say, I'll be really careful. <laughs> Aren't you afraid? And I'm like, no, I'm not afraid. Yep. No. <laughs> I found New York invigorating. I still do. Yes, absolutely. How? What was the time between Pratt and Yale? So Pratt was 73 to 75. And Mm -hmm. with my teacher, Alan Newman, I got a uh, research grant. We got it together for platinum printing. So I started making platinum prints in 1974. Okay. So some of the prints, well, all the prints in the show are vintage. So there's some from 1974, 75 through the 70s. So I started with a 4.5. So there's 4.557 and, of course, Mm an 8.10. And, you know, I... Again, I started working for the Law of the Sea Conference in 77, So, which was really fortunate because when I asked to take time off in 79 to 81 is when I went to Yale, they, they let me have that time off. I would come back every vacation I had, and we met twice a year, once in New York and once in Geneva, and I became the computer expert at a time when the computer was like a whole floor of the UN. Mm. You know, this is, huh. you know, it's before PCs. It's, you know, I had to learn programming. They taught me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I became the expert. So they had to take me to Geneva, which was really lucky. I mean, I yeah. love working there because then on my days off, I could, you know, go see where Van Gogh painted. I could huh. go see, you know, I could, Paris was close by. It's, it's it, you know, in Germany, I, you know, I th- there's so many artist whose work I wanted to see, but I also wanted to experience where they painted. You know, working in Geneva was a gift. And also, it was helpful for going to school because I I got paid per diem and I lived very cheaply and I used that towards my tuition. So then you you graduate Yale? Yeah. I, I mean, but I was still working at the UN. I never really stopped. I just took periods of time off to, to, to do my classwork. Yeah, so your education in photography and working at the UN go hand in hand. Yes. Because you're at the UN till 1984. And, and then it's at Yale where Richard Benson suggests you go not bigger in prints, but bigger in negative, right? Right. You mentioned? Yeah. I, I had met Richard Benson before I went to Yale. I had seen a, a teeny Bandotti show that he printed for the MoMA. And, oh, wow. Um, I wrote him. I think that that show was 77, and I wrote him, and he invited me to come up and see what he was doing. I mean, I didn't have anybody really to show my work to, especially platinum prints. I mean, everybody would just say they were beautiful and perfect, and I knew that was bullshit. I needed somebody <laughs> to have a more critical eye. And um, Right. I mean, I had a few friends that, that were sophisticated, but I felt like I mm-hmm. here was this amazing person. And I wanted to meet him. And he said, yeah. come up. You can spend the night in my house. Barbara, his wife, was nine months pregnant. And they, they still oh, embraced wow. me like family. Mm. And it was amazing. And I spent a few days there. And we kept in touch. And then in 79, when I went to Yale, he was there. That was his beginning of his teaching at Yale. Wow. So we started there at the same time. And we were already friends, and I really had already carried his voice around with me, and I now, of course, I carry it around even even more. He was, sure. he was amazing and so supportive. And is it at Yale that you pick up the 7x17 seven then? No, no. You know, like for the final crit, that was the thing. That was the thing that really sort of carried me forward is that maybe my work could be a little bit bigger. And... I mean, Walker Evans 8x10 contact prints look pretty good. So do Aceh. So. They do. <laughs> they certainly hold but, up. But, you know, <laughs> what, what, what you're thinking about for your students is how to push them forward. And, yes, um, exactly. And so, actually, I knew that they made panoramic cameras, 717, 820, and 1220. And I was very interested in the panorama. I became very interested because of that Chinese painting class. It reminded me to go back and look at the Western photographers. 
And then mm-hmm. it also reminded me to look at the painters that use that long frame. And, of course, there's no greater place than China with the hand scroll and the hanging scroll, where the right. landscape is really explored more than a, in a 360. Like, it, it's a big journey. And mm. I was so interested in that. My pictures, I don't turn the camera. I move the camera. And I, I want each frame to really hold its own. It, I mean, each right. frame has to be complete. So in order to make a long frame, I'm like moving the camera and then moving it back because I want it to start and end. And, you know, so each frame has its own. Um, it, it speaks individually. Right. So instead of rotating the camera where you're getting this distortion, kind of, uh, dist- right, in a way that people think about stitching photographs together now, right. right, you're thinking about each frame having its own perspective that stands by itself, but then connects the landscape together. Yeah. And so that's why they can be more than 360, because I'm moving. Mm. You know, of course, I might move to the side and the back, but I'm moving the camera, not turning. It. Yeah. And, and you've done, you've taken that camera uh, other places too. You've taken that idea to the, the, of course, the American West, right? Right. Well, I mean, all those things are kind of, you know, I, I, when I first went to China, I was there for nine months and I came back for six months and then I went back for six months and I have gone every year except for 89. And then of course, 2020 and 21, 22 probably won't be able to go, but right. it's been very consistent, but it also coincides with my work and New York and the American West, and, you know, I've, yeah. I've continued to photograph. I mean, what was nice about this, what's nice about this show, Flat Earth, is that it embraces my work across Europe, America, China. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, just because of how the industry has changed, how is it getting materials these days and supplies? You know, my film has always been special ordered. And yes, I, re- I remember that when I was your student, yeah. you know, you special ordering film. And didn't you also have to cut film down at times? I mean, it, in the beginning, I cut film down until oh, okay. one near, New Year's Eve, I was cutting film and I sliced a piece of my thumb and I'm like, ah, there we go. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Enough Not of that. doing that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it was stupid on my part. I was, I had a ruler and I had it, you know, clamped down, but I of had course, an working exact in total and darkness. I, yeah, working yeah. darkness and I had... <laughs> An exacto blade, which is really sharp. Super sharp. Yeah. So it really didn't hurt. You feel this sensation of... Oh, it was a a nice surgical cut. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So I learned that, you know, it wasn't so expensive per sheet. I mean, it's still expensive, but not, you know, Mm -hmm. not a lot more than, say, by 10. But it was, you had to buy a lot at once. I mean, even back then, it was every time I ordered film, it was five to $8,000. Wow. So I had to save up my money to buy it. But I, I've managed to, to keep that alive in the beginning. I mean, it was all Kodak until That's right. Kodak raised their prices. And then Ilford looked very appealing. And Yeah, and, Ilford really stepped in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Ilford, you still have to kind of order it. It's not special order, but you're much better off, mm-hmm. you know, getting $5,000 at a time. And the the platinum palladium process, I guess that never really went away, right? Well, in the beginning, there was no Bostick and Sullivan. There were none of those people. I had to, you know, Mm. I acquired the um, platinum and palladium compounds from Johnson Matthey, which is a British company, but they were in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And I I got in contact with them. They're the ones that supplied William Willis, the inventor of the process, with his platinum and palladium. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that is. So, you know, in the beginning, you know, with Alan Newman, we had to, you know, source everything. The hardest thing was um, the ferric oxalate. Because of um, the specialty with getting that shipped or handling? No, no, no. Just finding somebody that would make it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that hard to make as opposed Mm -hmm. to the platinum and the palladium. But you need somebody that's that has certain skills and love of that kind of thing. But you know, we found a uh, a retired chemist, and oh, I got wow. my stuff from him for years. And then Bostick and Sullivan. I I don't I wasn't their first customer, but maybe number four. So I mean, I think it's pretty clear why you moved to that that panoramic format and why you photograph so much in China. Why why the platinum palladium then? 
Well, you know, one of the great things about being a student is you're exposed to all sorts of things that you mm-hmm. haven't really thought about. Like when I was at Pratt, we had to study our art history class and the history of photography involved going to the MoMA at least once a week to look at prints in the print room. And even though there's exhibitions and I'm going to see exhibitions, I mean, it's rare that you see a whole show of, say, Frederick Evans or Peter Henry Emerson. So I, I, I guess I started to look more seriously at that work. And then, you know, I was making contact prints in silver, and I felt like some of the things that I was interested in were missing in the print that were in the negative. And, and then I, I really like the way that the drawing and the platinum prints and yeah. also that, that there's no emulsifier, that you're right. looking directly into the print like it's a drawing because it's just inert platinum in the fibers of the paper. And hmm. when you're finished with the process, it's just inert platinum in the fibers of the paper. So it's like making a drawing or ink painting, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's, so you're looking directly. It's, uh, it's, it's, so you yeah. can look at the print from any angle. It, it's just different. And the um, I guess the range between the, the shadows and the highlights, it, it keeps those things more open, more detail? More detail, more subtle detail. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I never stopped making silver prints, but there's certain things where I really wanted to make the platinum print. And mm-hmm. I never stopped making silver prints, especially for the panoramas, because in order to see them and to know that they they would work. I needed to make proofs and kind of final prints even in, in silver and tape them together. You know, you mentioned that you, you've also photographed in New York with this camera. On your website, there's a, um, the homepage image is from 2020. I mean, pretty recent. It's a photograph called Shooting Fifth Avenue, a series made in New York during the 2021 election year. What was that? Mm-hmm. When were you doing that? Well, I know when were you doing that, but what, what was pandemic. that about? Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I've always photographed New York since the day I arrived, and it never stopped. It, you know, whether it was eight by ten or seven seventeen, maybe people know that work less. But actually, in the beginning, when I was showing, that's the work I was showing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you know, I've had many different projects over the years. You know, Central Park, the parks in New York, but then I also was uh, had a commission by the Prairie Foundation. In Montana. And so I worked on that for several months. It was wonderful, recommended by Lee Friedlander, who had by that time become a, a good friend. Mm-hmm. Where did you meet Lee? I met Lee. I mean, of course, he's a legend. I knew of his work yeah. <laughs> from before I could even call myself a photographer. And I always wanted to meet him. I mean, I'd seen him in person, but, you know, that's not really meeting somebody. So in 1988, I was working on this exhibition for China. I wanted to take 10 photographers' work there for an exhibition. You know, just to sort of thank the people that that had helped me at Mm -hmm. that point over the last four years when I was working there. People from the Photographers Association, my first friends there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had had exhibitions of my own work. You know, I... I really wanted to bring something that was more than just me. So for this exhibition, I invited 10 people. Some were friends, and and many were people that I just admired. And I I just thought, well, they can always say no, but they won't say yes (laughs) unless I ask them. (laughs) And one of my friends suggested that, well, I mean, I was going to ask Lee, but I didn't know. And she said, well, she would introduce us and... I was introduced to Lee in a more formal way. And then and then I wrote him a letter and I said, um, you know, I'm doing this exhibition. Would, would you be interested in lending me work? And for everybody, I said, I can't guarantee that the work won't get mangled or bent, you know, because even though I'm carrying it over by myself, I'll carry it back. You know, it has to go through customs. And back in those days, it was, it was just, mm-hmm. you know, unpredictable. But very respectful. It's just that, you know, people don't handle photographs with the same, no. yeah, <laughs> the same anywhere. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't even say across America, if you gave somebody a bunch of prints to look at, they would be as careful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be if you asked Cardi Bresson if, if he could, like, you could reproduce his work in this magazine, he sent a silver print. Wow. 
And, you know, for those of us that were in awe of him, we just like, oh, my God, this is like a piece of the, 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 the rock, you know? And we <laughs> handle it as if it's, you know, a sacred thing. But, um, but not everybody did. But anyway, I had to warn all the photographers so they could give me, you know, work prints. Right. So Lee gave me 10, 11 by 14 prints. Hmm. You know, I was just like blown away by that. And that was um, 1988. And then, you know, many of the people I asked said, no, I still have, I have all the letters of rejection. <laughs> is, that in, is that in your burn book? <laughs> no, it's just, you know, either they're too busy. You know, I don't say yes. Sure. I don't say no, yes to everything. You know, I understand. Oh, no, you can't. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1993, he asked me, well, are you going to go to China this year? Can I can I come with you? I'd really like to see the mountains in Guilin. Oh, wow. And so he came with me. He was there for almost three weeks. And it was an amazing experience being with Lee. I bet. Yeah. You know, it's like a PhD course. And <laughs> That's <laughs> no, right. I mean, you know, he doesn't really like to talk about photography. So th that isn't what we no, talk about. No, he's... He's famously known for not talking about yeah, photography. Yeah, I mean, you know, I learned a lot about music from Lee. That's right. That would make yeah, yeah. I could conversations about jazz. Yeah, right? jazz and and people like Screaming Jay Hawkins. I had never heard of mm -hmm. him. And then when I got back, Lee sent me, you know, some tapes, recordings of you know Screaming Jay Hawkins, and it's just like <laughs> you know, it opened a whole nother door. Oh, that's great. And on our way. I I said, you know, the Photographers Association is having this event, which they have every year, and they wanted to know if we could just stop by, because it's on our mm. way. It was in Guangzhou. He flew to Hong Kong and then went to Guangzhou, and we met in Hong Kong, and then we went in together. And I had my camera, he had his camera, and his recent book has one of the pictures, the first picture in the book is is made in Guangzhou with me. Oh, wow. I was photographing the f photographers photographing. Then all of a sudden, they saw the big camera and they turned the camera on me. I had one sheet of film left and Lee <laughs> Friedlander standing right next to me. Oh, but yeah. I just like, you know, just, you know, went into my zone, made a picture. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think that for me, that picture is so important because, because of so many reasons. But Originally, this camera that I've you know been using was made for um, taking pictures of people at banquets. In other words, a right. lot of people. And there I was, faced with a lot of people all looking at me, all photographers. It's just, <laughs> it was, it was so beautiful, but it's scary. And I didn't know whether I could really get it. I really, you know, I had to shield the lens. I had to do everything, but I can work quickly because I'm used to making pictures. You know. <laughs> I'm not right. used to working so quickly with trees don't move so much. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So back to the question. Oh, so uh, yeah, I know that I, I took us down a, 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 another path, which was wonderful, by the way. But yes, you were. So you were working, you're photographing in New York during uh, COVID and election. Yeah. So um, I, I had applied for this. I got recommended and I applied for this Pollock Krausner grant and because I really wanted to do something special during this time leading up to the election, that year leading up to the election. And then COVID came and I went to, I didn't know whether it was going to be the end of the world. I mean, whether they were going to close all the bridges in New York. I mean, it's very naive of me, but I, I didn't know. But my brother said, oh, you better come down to Pennsylvania. So... You know, I had all my cameras with me, and I went to Pennsylvania. And then I, you know, maybe after the first week, I asked him if he would make the oval and the circles mask for the Deerdorf. Oh, okay. Because it's something I always wanted to do. But I guess to back up a little bit, before I left, that was March, right? Um, yeah. So January, you know, I was already photographing all over the city, and... Shooting Fifth Avenue really has to do more with what Trump said, that he could shoot somebody mm. on Fifth Avenue. Nobody would notice. But Fifth Avenue is actually a place I pretty much frequent, you know, much like the photographers in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, Lee Friedlander, Winogrand, they love 57th and 5th, uh, you know, but I right. just love 5th, like walking all the way from where I live on 20th Street 
and just walking straight up to the 70s, you Hmm. know? There's so much going on. And then during the pandemic, after I came back from Pennsylvania, I stayed there for six weeks and started exploring with the circle and the and the oval and, and, and photographing my trees down there. And then I, I'm like, no, I have to get back to New York. I have to do something in New York. You know, people were reporting, you know, it's not really that unsafe. It's great. You can walk in the middle of the street. So I thought, oh, my God, the view camera in the middle of the street. How cool. Oh, that's right. <laughs> this is a rare opportunity. <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> you know, then I just, you know, walked 20 miles a day and it was out in the street and wow. through all periods of it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the boarding up of stores, and which was really remarkable. It's unusual for a New Yorker to see any store boarded up. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I was, I was, you know, I was sad to see my city like that, but at the same time, mm-hmm. I felt like you could look at the landscape of the city. You could look at the buildings and the architecture of the buildings in a different way. With It's, it's like, you know... Right. You know, you're getting ready for a period movie or something, and you put everything back to the way it was, you know. I was going to say that. It's like getting permits to shoot a film, and you get to clear out a place. Yeah. And, right. Hardly and any, the way you want. Hardly any cars on the street. Nobody, right. you know, I'm carrying the camera. Nobody's, like, looking at me sideways. I mean, they don't really look at me sideways anyway. But, yeah. I mean, even yeah. less so. And so mm-hmm. there was a kind of freedom of movement. But I was afraid to take any public transportation, so I just walked sure. everywhere. You mentioned the, the circles and ovals. I I know I understand the reference to, to circles in photography because, you know. The lens colors a circle, yeah. Exactly. All images are circles. What was your fascination with the idea of circle and oval with the work? Well, I had been fascinated with it for a while just because of the history, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, the lens covers this circle. And we put a rectangle in, in the middle of it. But some of the early cameras, they, they used the full circle. Yes, yeah. the early Kodaks. Yeah. Yep. And so I've been fascinated with Monet for many reasons. But in January of that year, um, 2019, I was in Denver. And there was a show of uh, this wonderful show of Monet, which was only there. It didn't travel anywhere. And they had borrowed from private collections, which museums often do, but they had three circular Monet water lily paintings. Hmm. And I feel like that that was a sort of, that was a sign for me to get serious. Because they they really, there's no beginning and there's no end in a circle. There's no edge. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a different kind of challenge. I've always wanted to, to sort of do something and, so, you know, I started in Pennsylvania with my brother so generously making me these masks. Yeah. All 19th century cameras had the ability with these grooves inside the camera to make, you know, full plate, half plate, quarter plate. So oh, that's, that's right. where that's yes. where it goes, basically. Because the oh, Deerdorf okay. is like a 19th century camera. And my Deerdorfs were bought new, and I had all the, the things with them. My 4557 and my 810 had had the sliding thing so I could do quarter plate, half plate, hmm. panorama. Was this uh, was this format specific to a body of work that you made? Yeah, and actually it accompanied um, for the show at Penumbra. They, mm-hmm. I mean, they were just so amazing. The curator <laughs> asked me, one, you know, I gave him access to a lot of work, especially this new work. And so one day he said, well, we'd really like to do this publication. Would it be okay with you? I mean, nobody ever asked me that. <laughs> and it was just, you know, the the book is 8 by 10, and it's accordion book. He had it printed in Syracuse. It was a little bit less expensive, but it's all, every fold, every glue point is made by him. It's like a handmade book. Oh. And so on one side are the circles against a white background, and it sort of folds down like a hanging scroll. And the other, it's the, the vertical ovals, and that folds out horizontally. And it's still available through Penumbra. It's called Elliptic. Yes. In fact, I ordered my copy from PenumbraFoundation.org, so get yours before it sells out. But I also <laughs> photograph New York, and I am continuing to photograph New York because it does something different. I mean, when I go out with a camera, I just go out with one camera. You know, either it's the panorama mm-hmm. or the 8x10 or the circle or the oval. I 
you know, I try not to take too much with me because then I just, you know, I have to be in that mode of looking. But I, I'm so happy I have all these possibilities. That's a, a nice place to end on. But before we do, is there anything coming up that we should know about? Um, let me think. There's um, a show coming up that has to do with um, Richard Benson's students. And Oh, wow. Yeah, and they had a small version of it in, in Philadelphia that coincided with um, this show, and Aperture's doing a book, and it should be out soon, and then there's going to be a show, a bigger show of Richard's former students. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that, that I'm excited about, and... You know, I'm in that civilization traveling show. It's going to be in Bologna this summer, late this summer. So I might go. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, this is my fantasy, whether I can, you know, even afford to go yeah. and whether, you know, the <laughs> pandemic, who knows what's going to happen. Um, I know. I'm just looking for a moment to get out to, you know, New Mexico or Arizona. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know. And you were just at Aurelia Gallery. Right. Uh, as well. Um, and yeah, so I'm just dying to take a trip back to Santa Fe. Yeah, I, I, love. I love driving yeah. across country. So probably this summer I may drive across again. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't driven across for a while. I've done eight trips across in my truck in the days yeah. when I had a truck. This time I drove, this last summer I drove out with the exhibition. And, you know, I really like the road trip. I love road trips, mm -hmm. but the long road yep. trip, it's just, you know, pretty special. And um, so, depending on the price of gas. <laughs> yes, that's going to affect a lot of travel. Yeah, this I mean, usually, you know? usually I camp, so that makes it less expensive, mm -hmm. and also stay with friends. And it's a good excuse to go see people that I miss, you know, that I don't get to see. Yep. Well, Lois, let me just say it's been great knowing you all these years, and you know, you were a big influence on my direction from our time at the School of Visual Arts, and. I want to say thank you for that, and thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. I mean, I feel very honored, and I'm I'm so proud of you. I mean, for continuing. Oh, you know, that's what that's the gift that the teacher gets. You know, that maybe something you do or say or being in that group of that was a pretty powerful group of people. Pretty class. pretty amazing group. Yeah. Yes, it was. And yep. and most of them are still photographing a great number for undergraduate yep. class. It's pretty remarkable. It is. And having taught now for 20 years, it, I know, I know it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. So yeah. thanks. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Well, let, we'll try to get together soon. How about that? Okay. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Bye everyone. Bye. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>